The reading of God's word is found in the book of Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I was reaching for my phone a few minutes ago, uh, not so I could make a call or text uh, during worship, but uh, so I could check the time. And I think I left it in the office. So I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to make this uh, a faith endeavor. <clears throat> and you can pray accordingly. Lord, let him be succinct. One time I did this in a church I was serving, and I mentioned that I didn't have my watch. And immediately, 10 men sprang up offering to give me their watches. I didn't know quite how to take that. Uh, well, I really did, but uh, in any case, we're going to be uh, moving into the last chapter of Philippians this morning, and uh, we want to keep in mind that Paul is writing to a, a good church, not a perfect church, but a good church. And he is stressing in this letter that though they were encountering hardships, persecutions, for their faith, internal challenges, as well as external challenges, the joy of the Lord was their strength. And so joy, as you've seen, no doubt, uh, has been and will continue to be the theme of this letter to the Philippians. Joy in the midst of a fallen, broken world. Joy in the midst of personal trials as well as congregational trials as well as uh, societal trials. How can we maintain that joy? He's been giving us lesson after lesson on that and we'll see more of it as we continue through this chapter. We're going to look today at the first three verses of chapter four. So let's give our attention now to God's word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written, are in the book of life. This is the word of the Lord. So there are two women in the church, the Christian church in the city of Philippi who are on the outs with one another. Again, two Christian women, two faithful workers with Paul, who nevertheless were having some kind of disagreement. An internal problem in the church, a relationship problem, and you thought those problems only took place in the first century, right? No, you probably didn't. It sounds rather familiar. 
two people who were not getting along in the church. Two people who were faithful servants of Christ. You know, conflict is all through the Bible. You stop and think about it. it it's, the whole Bible is laced with example after example, not of the uh, unbelievers out there in the world, but of those who were trusting in the Lord, who were his covenant people. And it could be traced all the way back to the very first two people who walked on the face of the earth, who found themselves in conflict and engaged in finger pointing when God pointed out that they had sinned. And it's been that way ever since. We should not be surprised, should we? That we sometimes can irritate other fellow church members and they, us. And so Paul addresses that here. And <clears throat> if you've ever read through <clears throat> Philippians and come to these verses, you might've thought, what does that have to do with me? <laughs> I suspect we already are beginning to know it has everything to do with us because we're in a fallen world and everybody in our church is a sinner by nature. A redeemed sinner we trust and hope but a sinner nonetheless. We are works in progress, right? We haven't arrived. Paul finished uh, chapter three, he talked about that. He said, God helped me to see that I was trying to, to be pleasing to him in my own righteousness, which was as filthy rags. I count it, but rubbish compared to knowing Christ. And then he says, not that I have achieved perfection, not that I have arrived, but I press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing on, you and I need to be pressing on. And here's a very concrete example of how that can be applied to us. Each verse here has uh, an important truth to bring to our attention. The first one is, of course, in the first verse. Treat Christians as Christians. Now you might think, well, duh. Of course I should do that. But don't we need to hear that? Isn't it possible that we can get upset with other people and end up thinking things about them that maybe are not true or saying things? out of anger or shunning people that have offended us. And we, we, practically speaking, we forget who they are. They're fellow Christians. Now, Paul here does a masterful thing, knowing that he's about to say something directly to the two women that were <clears throat> in conflict in the church. He doesn't jump straight into that. He tenderly and wisely and pastorally sets the groundwork, lays the groundwork for what he's going to tell Euodia and Syntyche. Look at how he does it in verse one. 
Therefore, remember he's tying that in with what he's been saying in chapter 3 about the gospel's power to transform lives and their responsibility to live accordingly. Verse 17 in chapter 3, join me in imitating those who are following Christ, those who are living by the gospel. Keep your eyes on those people. You can learn from them. Therefore, my brothers, and then notice how he, he uh, describes his heart for them. He doesn't treat them as enemies. He's writing to believers in Christ and he expresses here his own attitude towards them. He uses a number of <clears throat> terms of endearment to express his heart for them. And this is not the first time he's done it. Back in chapter 3, verse 18. For many whom I often told you and now tell you with tears are enemies <clears throat> excuse me, of the cross of Christ. <clears throat> he has tears. His heart is broken for those who aren't being faithful. But he, here is his description. My brothers, therefore my brothers, or my brethren. Now that word, by the way, is a comprehensive word. It's what we would call a generic term. It includes sisters in Christ as well as brothers in Christ. So he's talking to everybody here. Whom I love and long for. Paul doesn't see these people as uh, a job that he had to carry out and they were just the ones that he was having to carry out his responsibilities towards. These were people he cared for. <clears throat> In chapter one, verse eight, Paul had said the same thing. He says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> he loves them and he longs for them. He, he, he can't wait to see them. He, he enjoys being with them and, and fellowshipping with him and, and giving and taking in, in the uh, work of Christian fellowship. He's sort of like a proud parent at a graduation when he says, my joy and my crown they were the objects of his affection, and he saw them as, as people who had achieved a, a victory in Christ, a victory over sin. They were conquerors, as the Bible tells us, when we are in Christ. And so he sees them in terms of a, a celebratory way. Again, like the pride that a parent or a grandparent feels when he sees a child or a grandchild graduate from school. So proud of you. My son had his 43rd birthday yesterday. I told him happy birthday and I love him and I'm proud of him. He's a believer in Christ and he's seeking to live, he and his family, for Christ. <clears throat> it's what every parent wants, every Christian parent. I've always pr prayed and, and hoped that my children would be better Christians than I'll ever be. They've already passed me in that regard in their 40s, uh, and I wish I had been at that point when I was in my 40s. 
nonetheless, I'm thankful for that. And you can just get that kind of sense with Paul as he's talking about how he cares for the Philippian Christians deeply. He even says, my beloved. He just piles up these phrases. He wants them to understand how much he cares for them and how much he loves them. And in the middle of these <clears throat> deeply heartfelt descriptions, Paul exhorts them. There's a command here. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Thus is an easy word to overlook. Stand firm accordingly. Stand firm in the light of what I've been saying. Stand firm in the, in the fact that I am rejoicing and thankful for you and for my, and my love for you and your love for me. But you've got to stand firm. It's a military term, stand firm. Chapter one, verse 27 uses the same term. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There's a real active duty that you and I have in an ongoing way as Christians. We've got to daily stand firm in the gospel, stand firm for the truth, stand firm carrying out God's commandments and serving, and serving one another. We can stand firm together against our spiritual enemies as we follow Paul's counsel given there in chapter three that we were just talking about, along with what he's going to write in the rest of chapter four. So keep that in mind in the context here in which all of this is being given. And so this attitude of deep affection for all fellow Christians that Paul is, is uh, exemplifying here, that needs to be the, uh, the atmosphere in which you and I live and breathe with one another as fellow Christians. We've got to be sure that we are living in relationship to one another in the light of our call to follow Christ, to love as Christ loved us, and to put that above everything else. The second thing to note here is in verse two. Work to improve relationships. Verse two, I entreat <clears throat> Euodia and I entreat Syntica to agree in the Lord. You see how I use that word twice, entreat. It could well be translated urge. I urge you, each one of you, <clears throat> imagine, imagine if I stood up here and read a letter to the congregation, to you, the congregation, and I started naming names. Would you like that? No. No. Uh, if I could just say, you know, so-and-so, you need to shape up. You over here, you need to, to uh, stop doing that. You too, you need to, to work out your differences. Well, that would just, that would, things would blow up well, probably if we tried that. But look, that's the way it was done in those days. And so it wasn't that unusual. In fact, it was Paul really respecting these two women 
by doing this because he was showing how important they were in the church. Your fellow laborers with me in the gospel, you are lovers of Jesus. And you and probably other people in the audience, you remember this letter was read out loud. That's the way they did it. They didn't have you know, emails to get copies uh, passed on to you from the church office. So Paul would be having someone, probably uh, the one that was working with him here. <coughs> Excuse me. Someone was reading the letter to the congregation. And as they're reading, he's reading it. <laughs> I wonder if he was saying, the guy that was reading it was saying, oh, he's naming two ladies here in the church. Well, I got to keep reading. I urge Euodius, I urge Syntica to agree in the Lord. I don't know who it was, but it was somebody wrote uh, that these two ladies' names a uh, little unusual names, but he said that uh, it might have been more accurate to have, call, to have called them odious and soon touchy. Um, maybe that's a little more descriptive of their names, but he tells them specifically what they need to do in order for the church to be more united in Christ and faithful in the work that the Lord's given them. I entreat you, each one of you, to agree. Now, that doesn't mean we're supposed to think exactly the same way on every matter. He doesn't mean that. He says, I want you to agree in the Lord. And the word there, agree, really is saying, I want you to, to, to have the same mindset. It's, it's the same word that Paul's used earlier, the mind of Christ. He talks about in, you know, in verse chapter two, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was that? Though he had the glories of being divine, he put those aside and became human so that he could serve us. So he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross to pay for our sins. The mindset that Jesus had to do that that's the same mindset that you and I must anchor ourselves in so that we can agree. The whole key to all of this, this unity thing, we hear people talk about unity all the time, ad nauseum. But the whole point is that you can't have true companionship, true friendship, true brotherly love, apart from your having the mind of Christ, apart from your relationship with the Lord. Because the more you know Christ, the more you rejoice in the gospel that, that you now are his forever, the more you're going to have the mindset of Christ, the more you're going to treat your brothers and sisters in Christ the way you should. And one of the ways we do that one of the ways we do that is by our reckoning what things are really worth dying on that hill for. So many times we get 
disproportionately upset with someone else over things that really aren't that important. They may have a level of importance, sure, probably do. But are they that important? For instance, does this professing Christian that uh, you're laboring with in the gospel, do they deny some aspect of the gospel? Are they buying into what the Judaizers were teaching in Philippi? You know, that's, that's a pretty high priority there that you can't really afford to compromise. And then you have to scale down from there. What's less important, what's even less important in dealing with one another, we have to stop and ask ourselves, is this really worth straining our relationship over? What's the most important thing? In the Lord. That's such a key phrase there. Agree in the Lord. Agree in terms of our relationship to the Lord and his work in our lives. So don't adopt a defeatist mentality when you find yourself in a strained relationship with another Christian. And look, this could be someone else in the church. It could be your spouse. You know, it could be any number of relationships with fellow Christians. And we have to be sure that we don't have this, uh, there's no, I'm so tired of this, there's just no way it's ever going to be resolved. Nothing is impossible with God. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. I mean, let's think about some of those verses. You think God is not going to supply you with the ability to, to restore the harmony there. Again, you won't necessarily agree, not completely, on certain matters. But the relationship is more important than the issue. We don't know what problems Euodia and Syntica were having. We don't know uh, the specific details. It really doesn't matter what the details were. It wasn't a theological issue more than likely. It was a practical issue. It was a relationship issue. Maybe it had to do with how to handle certain church matters or maybe one was hurt by the other. Could be any number of things. Remember that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement over using John Mark. So much so that there was a split in the missionary activities. Read that, about that in the book of Acts. And later, <clears throat> you read in, in, in uh, Paul writing later that Mark has become very useful to him. But initially, that was not the case. And there was a pretty, uh, pretty uh, strong discussion, I'll put it that way, over whether Mark should even be going on this missionary uh, endeavor. But God in his mercy brought that back together, brought them back together. These things happen in churches, don't they? Happened with Paul. <laughs> Paul humbly and respectfully says 
to use the words of Dr. Dennis Johnson in his commentary, please let the friction cease and let the one mind that is yours in Christ prevail. These are not just empty words. That's why I'm saying we need to work towards strengthening our unity and our relationships as fellow Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Euodia and Syntyche were spiritual siblings, as someone put it. I like that phrase, spiritual siblings. And the way that this ought to work, according to Scripture, you read this in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, if someone has a sin against you, you don't sit back and pout and say, well, they need to make the first move. It says, if someone has something against you, you go and seek to be reconciled to them. And if you remember that you have an issue with someone, again, you go. And so the idea should be, if these are two Christians, that each person should be responding to this conflict by moving towards the other. Now that won't probably happen too often, but your responsibility, if you are in a conflict with someone, is to go to that person. Whatever they may do, however they may react, we should do what God calls us to do in his word. We shouldn't be set in our ways so much that we proudly, in our pride, just say, I refuse to do that. I'm going to just stew in my own juices. Reminds me of the cantankerous old man in a congregational meeting. Someone made a motion to make the decision unanimous. The old man barked out, I, there, no, how do you put it? He put it that ain't, there ain't going to be anything to be unanimous as long as I'm a member of this church. He didn't object to the, what the discussion was, he objected to, be, to the vote being unanimous. Just can't have that. There ain't gonna be such a thing as long as I'm a member of this church. Okay, well, it was a 99.9% .9 vote in favor and he was the one-tenth of a percent against, I suppose. <clears throat> we have to work at this. It's not just going to fall out of the sky. And it requires humility, it requires self-examination, it requires ongoing love for our fellow Christians. Lastly, would you notice in verse 3, we need to help each other grow in expressing our unity in Christ. Not only personally working for our uh, efforts to, to maintain a healthy relationship with fellow Christians, but we need to help each other. That's another reason God has the church. We are to, to build one another up. We are to, to instruct one another. We are to encourage one another. Uh, we are to confront one another where needed. Whatever the case, we need to practice love towards one another. And so in verse three, Paul says something quite remarkable. He says, yes, I ask you also, now he calls out somebody else. I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with, with Clement. There's another name dropped. 
and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Believers have a holy camaraderie, united as one body in Christ, and we need to appreciate this fellowship and work together to strengthen our unity and to resolve conflicts, to be peacemakers. We need to appreciate this fellowship and we need to work together in that fellowship. And so Paul calls on a specific person to help Euodius and Syntyche. This mystery person is referred to simply as true companion, at least in some translations. The actual word in the Greek is the word syzygous, which means true companion, or it's a proper name. It could mean a, a loyal yoke fellow, people you know, who are yoked with one another. And they, they are brought together in a relationship and they are companions in the gospel. And so he's calling on this other person to step in and assist Euodia and Syntyche in working through the issue that they have. We are yoked together ourselves, aren't we? We are yoked together in the church, working side by side, as he described Euodia and Syntyche here. It's the same term he used, I mentioned in chapter 1, verse 27, when he was talking about uh, serving side by side for the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Side by side. We're working together. We're yoked together in our relationship as fellow members of this congregation. By the way, one of the before I finish here, one of the one of the advantages of preaching through books of the Bible is that you can deal with a subject like this uh, just as a matter of course, going through the book, so that nobody, uh, hopefully, will think that the reason I'm preaching this is because of what happened with two people in this church last Tuesday. You know. I have no idea uh, how this might apply in this congregation. I'm honestly telling you that. So you know that I'm not picking out any two people. If I was, I'd call you by name right now. No, I wouldn't. But I just want you to realize that this is the, the beauty of just going through a whole book of the Bible and not skipping over the parts that we might think are uncomfortable. They're necessary. They're realistic. So Paul is saying here, you need to work together. This true companion needs to help you. If two people are really struggling to try to work out their differences or their relationship, one of the ways you can deal with that, aside, of course, from prayer and discussing with each other, one of the ways you can deal with that is to have an intermediary, a third party that you both agree, trust and, and respect and is a mature believer and they can listen to each of you as you talk about what concerns you. And that third person 
could well talk, help talk you through those things and consider ways to address it. It can be an amazingly helpful thing. And I think that's what Paul is talking about right here. And he mentions Clement and the rest of the fellow workers. He's just tying it all in together, all the different people that are your resources to help you. And in the, in the original language in this verse, some form of the word with is used four times. Doesn't come out in our English completely, but some version of the word with. You see what he's saying? Work with each other. Work with one another. Not in isolation. Not on your own. Now there's two matters worth noting here at the, as we finish this up. One is Paul's plan of action to resolve this issue between these two women and that was to bring someone in to help them. And it could have been that this true companion was one of the elders could have been one of the people he's referring to here, doesn't matter. I wonder how often churches turn to this sort of practice when there are conflicts within their assemblies. Or whether we just say, those two are never gonna get along. You've got resources. The other matter is the last thing Paul says here about all the people he has mentioned. It's a wonderful description of any true follower of Christ. Their names are written in the book of life. Their names are in the book of life. And in some places in the scriptures, it talks about their names are written. We have that song we sing, my name is written on his hand. There is a book of life. And if, you're a trust, if you are trusting in Christ alone today, relying on his crucified suffering and death, if you're trusting in him, think about that. There is a book of life, maybe not literally, but there is in reality a book of life. And it's got the list of all those who are trusting in Christ. Paul told Timothy, the Lord knows them, they're his. Those names were written from before the foundation of the world when God determined to save you. And he did save you. And once he saved you, he's going to keep that relationship your name is written in the book of life. It's one thing to have your name written in the voter rolls. You'd be sad if you went up to vote and they say, your name's not on this book. And I've had that happen. It's because I was in the wrong voting location. My name was written down somewhere. Book of life, the book of eternal life. What assurance, what encouragement. That ought to afford us. So Paul is clearly teaching here something very important about congregational life. Yes, disagreements will arise. But how we handle the disagreements is as important, really more important, than what we decide. If we remember that we are fellow members of the body of Christ, that we are in the Lord, that we are brothers and sisters in the family of God, that will go a long way to resolving fractured relationships and hurt feelings. I would encourage you, 
Think about you, yourself, and your relationships with your fellow church members in this congregational family. <clears throat> Are you harboring ill feelings towards someone? Have you sinned against someone? Is there a relationship with someone in this church that is suffering? If a relationship is suffering, there are people who are suffering that you need to consider and you need to respond to biblically. If there is, out of love, I would call on you. Paul said, I would entreat you. Be reconciled. Drop something if you have to that was important to you, but again, not on the level that you would die on that hill. Let's love one another. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you address things in your word that we probably would never even want to think about because they're painful, they're hard, but they're so important. And for your glory to better show the love that Christians have towards one another, bring about peace in our relationships where needed. And we thank you that we have peace with one another and that we can deal with those areas where we don't. We pray, O oh Lord, for the power of Christ to help us here. And should anything come up in the, in the future where a relationship that we have with another Christian is uh, difficult, we pray that we could apply these things to our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.